It's a wonderful sound to hear so many voices unified in praising our God. And this is a small picture of what's going on across this entire campus today. When we gather in the main service and you get thousands of voices together, it's astonishing to hear and to hear them praising God. And this passage of scripture that the, the song refers to just gets us a glimpse of what it's going to be like. One day we're going to stand in the presence of God, all those who have trusted Christ Jesus, and we'll join our voices with that chorus. Our voices will be unified. But in this lifetime, on this earth, we don't always see that unity happening. And in fact, last week when Pastor Bill finished the sermon in Zechariah 5, he referred to a place that we're going to go to today. He finished the sermon in the land of Shinar. And so let's go back in time to that actual land and see what was going on. So open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 today. And this sermon is called, When God Came Down. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, let's read that together. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Uprisings can either be called rebellions or revolutions. So how do you know the difference? On the 4th of July, we celebrate the American Revolution. But at the time when it happened, the British hardly considered it a revolution. It was a rebellion, and so they acted accordingly. The Civil War, was it a revolution or a rebellion? Usually the outcome of the uprising determines on whether it is a, a revolution or a rebellion. But this isn't always the case. Sometimes the successful rebellion is referred to as it was in the case in Wilmington, North Carolina, as the Wilmington Insurrection. And to this date, it's the only successful coup on American soil. In this post-Civil War town in 1898, it had developed a harmony, a racial um, interface in which there were people in government of different races. It was stable and it was prosperous. But on November 10th of that year, things exploded as 2,000 armed men stormed the streets of Wilmington. It was a frenzy of urban warfare. The mayor and the mixed race city council were ousted 
And by nightfall, a mob had seized control of the city and installed their leader as the new mayor. This was just the beginning of a wave of racial oppression that spread across North Carolina. By the end of that day, there were 60 black citizens dead in the streets and thousands more were fleeing in panic. This was an awful and tragic rebellion and it led to a instigation of Jim Crow laws that took over the entire state. There was segregation forced and black voting rights were suppressed. This rebellion was not only unlawful, but it was vile. It was rooted in hatred. It was rooted in fear and it was rooted in pride. But it doesn't just come out of nowhere. These kind of things don't just happen. They exist in the heart of those who join in the rebellion. Good people really aren't anywhere because we all have inside of our hearts a seed of rebellion like this. It starts in our corrupt hearts. And you can see this throughout human history. If we just look back in the past century, we can see examples of men seizing power by force. Hitler and the Nazis, they are responsible for the death of over 7 million Jews, plus an additional 6 million people who were deemed unwanted or dangerous. About the same time, Stalin and his Red Revolution claimed the lives of nearly 20 million people. A little bit later in China, Mao Zedong and his revolution led to the death of 45 million people. In more recent times, the sexual revolution has claimed the lives of over 61 million unborn Americans. And it goes on and on. Tragically, there are more examples, but we don't need to look out there. We can look in our own homes of how people oppress the ones that they claim to love, about how fathers abuse their power. Our story of rebellion goes way back to a garden and a forbidden fruit. But today, we're going to go back to the first organized rebellion by mankind. It's the first spiritual rebellion in human history, as we just read about in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, gives us a sobering warning so that we will live our lives in lasting wonder. We are given a warning so that we will live in wonder. The warning is of what mankind's rebellion leads to, and the wonder is of God's merciful response. If I were to give an outline to this passage, verses 1 through 4 would be the rebellion. Verse 5 is the divine research, and verses 6 through 9 is the Lord's response. We have a rebellion, we have research, and we have a response. Now, most of us have heard the story before. If you've grown up in the church, undoubtedly, as a child, you had a Sunday school class on the Tower of Babel. I was talking to one gentleman today, and he referred to a, a book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it refers to the Babel fish that people would stick in their ear to understand one another's language. This idea of Babel is still prevalent in our society today. But if you let Wikipedia interpret the text for you, you'll get it wrong. And this is what Wikipedia thinks this text is about. The Tower of Babel, as told in Genesis 1 through 9, is an origin myth meant to explain why the world's people speak different languages. Is that really what this story is about? We, we might say we know it's not a myth, but is it only there to tell us why people speak French, Spanish, and Italian? 
what we really need to grapple with in this text are three crucial questions. What actually happened? Why did God respond in the way he did? And did the punishment fit the crime? What happened? Why did God respond in the way he did? And did the punishment fit the crime? We're going to start in the beginning and our work, we're going to work our way through these first four verses as we look at this rebellion and ask the question, what really happened? Let's go back to verse one. Look with me there. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. It almost sounds redundant, doesn't it? One language, same words. But this is very different meanings here. One thing that became very clear to me when I studied Spanish for a year in Costa Rica. After a year, I felt like I could converse with people. My Spanish was still rocky, but at least I could have conversations. And then my wife and I moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I discovered there that not all Spanish is equal. (laughs) 50% of the vocabulary changed. It was the same language, but different words. In Costa Rica, if you wanted to eat a pineapple, you asked for piña. In Argentina, this is a piña. You don't ask for that. You ask for anana. If you want to make guacamole in Costa Rica, Mexico, you get a aguacate. Not in Argentina, you get a palta. It didn't even sound similar. We were confused and trying to figure out what people were talking about. The accent on top of it sounded Italian. If you were to have an El Pollo Loco down there, they would say it's El Pollo Loco. You don't say me amo Gregorio, you'd say me chamo Gregorio. And I was confused. And they spoke so fast. I could barely make out what they were saying. And when I tried to speak to people, if I didn't get it out fast enough, they would turn around and walk away. And that was people in the church. I was dazed and confused. It was the same language, but not the same words. And you know, in English, we have the same situation, right? We know that here you live in a flat and you change a nappy. Oh, wait, that's Britain. You live here in an apartment and change a diaper. You don't take the elevator there. You take a lift. A torch is our flashlight, the boot and the bonnet, the trunk and the hood. These people were unified and monolingual. They didn't even have different slang. They were unified. And what an opportunity this was. They were unified people with a unified language, and as we'll see, a unified will. And this theme of unity is a backdrop for the passage, and it helps us understand what happens and why it happens. This rebellion began because of their unity. And so what we see is the whole earth had one language and the same word, such potential for good or evil. So let's look a little bit further and see how this unity plays itself out. Look with me at verse two. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. There are three key words in this verse that help us orient around what is going on. And they're easy to miss because one thing about Hebrew narrative, they love to be subtle. They love discrete details. They don't like to just tell it to us up front. They like us to discover, and they use language and vocabulary to start pointing you in the direction. The three words that are used here may not be what you'd expect, but the three words are east, found, and plain. East, found, and plain. Let's look at this word east. 
It says here that they came from the east. They migrated from the east. They start moving eastwardly. They're in the east. They move eastward. The NASB captures this. It actually says they journeyed east. In short, they started in the east and they kept going eastward. Why is this significant? The word east in the Bible, especially in the book of Genesis, always refers to judgment and rebellion. Listen to how Genesis uses the word east. In chapter 3, verse 24, Adam and Eve are driven from Eden, and they were made to settle eastward of the garden and eastward of God's presence. East implies judgment. With Cain in chapter 4, verse 16, he was sent out east again, from God's presence, and he went to dwell in the land east of Eden. This was away from God. This away from his blessing and indicates judgment. After the passage we have today, when Abraham and Lot are together, in chapter 13, eventually Lot separates from Abraham. And can you guess what direction Lot goes? East, you got it. And he was leaving God's man of blessing. He was leaving the promise and going eastward. And bad things happened to Lot when he did that. He got into a lot of trouble. Later in chapter 25, verse 6, Abraham had sons by a woman, Keturah. And they left Abraham's family and they went eastward away from Isaac, the son of blessing. In chapter 29, verse 1, the deceitful Jacob flees his family and his land, and he goes eastward to dwell with a people out east. East is not just an extra biblical direction device like north, south, or west. East means breaking fellowship with God. It means potential judgment is coming. And so when Moses chose this word by the Holy Spirit, east, the original readers would have raised their eyebrows and thought, what is happening here? This is not good. East is important because it was intentionally put in there to guide our thinking about what's really going on. To give you an idea of what's supposed to be going on and why this separates from what God intended, we'll back up a little bit more. If you remember after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his sons and daughters-in-law are facing God in a worship event. They're offering a sacrifice and God gives them a mandate. And he says it in chapter 9, verse 1. He says it in chapter 9, verse 7. And it's a repeat of what he had told Adam and Eve back in chapter 1, verse 28. And he said this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This repetitive command is repeated so that we get it. It's not redundant. It's not because the author lacks skill in writing. They repeat themselves so we can understand what's important. And so when we read these people go east, but then they settled in a land, we immediately notice this is not what God intended. There's something going on here. And so the next word that we want to look at is the word found. They go east, and then they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Embedded in this word found is the idea of being hunted down. They, they found something that they were seeking, but not just looking casually. They had intent on 
finding it and conquering it. It's laced with violence and aggression. Additionally, we we can look back at chapter 10. They call it the table of the nations. We start seeing what happened to Noah's sons. We have Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Noah's son, Ham, his children and his descendants become the chief enemies and opponents of God's people who come from Shem. And so what we see is that these people of Ham's descendants are leaving the area that was assigned to them and they start going into the land of their brother. This would stir up memories of the sibling rivalry of Cain and Abel. This cannot be good. And when we read the word found, you can get the idea they're not going there to have a fun catch-up time with their brothers. The third word that we see is the word plain. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. And this word also communicates hostility and violence. This is only 100 years after the flood. And so the earth has changed dramatically because of the flood and the, the cataclysmic event that happened. And the plains developed as the earth was violently thrust apart as hills rose and lands were leveled. And this word plain communicates this idea of a violent action that produced a wide open space. And so they, they are finding this plain because in their hearts, they're looking to oppose this land, to conquer it violently if necessary. And so we have here a hint of war, a hint of readiness to act if they need to. But the question is, who are they going to fight against? Who is really their opposition? So these people, they go east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Already we are assured that something bad is going to happen. If there was music playing, it would be ominous. It would make you feel edgy. And there would be darkness in the scene. And you would you'd want to mute the TV or turn it off. But we can't do that. It takes us further. We're starting to see this, this open and willing rebellion take form. They're settling on the plain is also in plain view of God. They know that God can see. They know that God is aware of what's going on, but it's no longer a secret plan in their hearts. When they settle, they no longer care whether God sees or not. And now they're going to begin with their plan. So what I'm doing here is I'm arguing that the words of the text tell us what their motives were. We have in our hands a massive insurrection developing. A massive rebellion is taking shape although they were considered a revolution, I'm sure. So we're going to look back a little bit further in chapter 10 to really understand what's going on. So look back at chapter 10 with me. I mentioned already this is the account of Noah's sons. And starting in verse 6, we get the sons of Ham. And look with me at verse 6 of chapter 10. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Verse 7, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama and Sabteca, the sons of Rama, Sheba and Dedan. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, did you hear how that was different than what came before it? This is the first time in the list of names that we get this expression that Cush fathered someone. If you look before this up in verse 1, it talks about the sons. In verse 2, the sons of Japheth. In verse Six, the sons of Ham, but suddenly it says, Cush 
fathered Nimrod. When you get a difference like this that interrupts the text, we should listen and pay attention. He fathers a son named Nimrod. And this man, Nimrod, is a fascinating character. In fact, he gets four verses dedicated to him in this text. No one else in chapter 10 gets that much attention. So we should pay attention, shouldn't we? Who was this Nimrod? Well, look at him here in verse 8. It says, he was the first on earth to be named a mighty man, a hero of renown, a man of reputation. But what kind of reputation did this man have? What was his might used for? Look at verse 9. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. As was said in the introduction, I I have hunted a little bit, and I earned the nickname the butcher because of my apparent skill at cleaning the animals that other people shot. My first time at hunting cap, that was my role. So when people shot an elk, I got to get down there and help clean it. And so they named me the butcher. Nimrod would have a similar name. He was called a warrior. This is more than a deer hunter and a field dresser. What this word means is a man slayer. He was like a gladiator of old. He was a, a, uh, he was a tyrant is what the word can also be translated as. He was not a man to be trifled with. People could not resist his power and his skill in death and killing. He was a warrior. Second, We're told about this man in verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This already connects us to the text we have in front of us today. And it was the beginning of his kingdom. He was a ruler. He was an empire builder. He was a warrior and he's a ruler and he started his kingdom in Babel. But third, there's one other information detail we get about him. In verse 11, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. He built great cities. He's a warrior. He's an empire ruler and he's a builder. Great things about this man, but significant is his name itself. The name Nimrod means we will rebel, plural. Now, despite all this background of Nimrod, you never once heard him mentioned in chapter 11. Why is he not mentioned? Because the text in chapter 11 gives us two key characters. The first character is a composite character of all these people. You see it in verse three. They said to one another, and this phrase one another is amplified in the Hebrew. They want you to focus on one another or they speak in one voice, us, let us do this. Come, let us do this. This is the one key character. The second key character is the Lord himself. You see it in verse six. The Lord said, and ironically he says, let us go down. You have the people And you have the Lord, two key characters. Because of the focus that the author has here, they don't want to bring in a lot of other voices or people. And yet we can't help but see that Nimrod is involved here, especially since he started his kingdom in Babel and his name means we will rebel. If these people were to introduce themselves, they would say, we are Nimrod. They are a unified people. They have a unified language and they have a unified will to rebel. But God is in the scenes 
and God is there. And yet God is not acting. He's allowing this rebellion to unfold. And why is God doing that? We're going to answer this question in a little bit more. But first, we want to understand a bit more of what's going on. And look at verse 3 with me. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, this sounds like boys playing in the mud, making mud bricks or something. But what's going on here is a technological innovation that's on par with the iPhone today. They only at the time made bricks by drying them in the sun, and they would become hard in that way. It works great for a small one-level house, a hut, a storage bin for grain, but it does not work for the project that they have in mind. They need something harder and more sturdy to build this incredible city and tower that they're going to do. And so when they say, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, the text actually says, let us brick bricks and burn burn. It repeats it to emphasize that they're going to burn them completely. And so to do this, they would have to devise the technology of a kiln, an oven fire in a kiln. A kiln could be heated to 1,800 degrees. And when you put mud bricks into an oven that hot, the mud becomes as hard as stones. And so when it says they had stones and they had bitumen, they have everything they need to launch the rebellion. Now, I have to admit to you, I didn't know what bitumen was. I had to look it up and I discovered, as it says in some of your translations, it's tar. And I still wondered, what is that? Is that like the Brea tar pits? Um, what is this going on? The tar baby and the, the classic Disney story, Brer Rabbit. What is tar? Tar is sticky. We know that. But when combined with rocks like this, it becomes a sealant. It keeps water from penetrating. Now, this wasn't necessarily a, a heavy, rainy area, but it wasn't a fertile, fertile crescent. There would be water. And if they want this tower to last, they have to find a way to preserve it. The tar also would act as a mortar. It would bind those stones together. You have already this technological advancement that shows these people are not stupid. And now they're very capable to do what they have in mind next. And so look at verse four and see what they have in mind. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Their motives are starting to come out now. We could hint at it with their actions, but now they say exactly what they have in mind. As we saw earlier, the three key words in the earlier verses, now there are three key words that guide our understanding. Those three words are a city, a tower, and a name. Let's look first at this word city. A city, the word actually means a complex. It refers to a religious center, a temple complex. What's fascinating about this time is archaeologists have discovered that the people did not live in the cities that they built. They built cities for administrative purposes. That's where they had their governments or seats of government, or they would build buildings to store food in. But the people lived outside the city. But there was a primary purpose for cities in this time, and it was for worship. The city was a center of worship. Originally, they were to facilitate false religion. It is likely that this is the motivation of the people at Babel. Pastor John MacArthur notes that Babel is the mother of all false religions. And since chapter 10 tells us that Nimrod 
built his kingdom first at Babel. It is no accident that tradition attributes the invention of idolatry to Nimrod. So what was wicked about the city planning project? Why is this a bad thing? Why would this be tainted with negativity? It's because this city would be later known by its more common name, Babylon. And we know in the scriptures that Babylon is never a good place. It's never the place you want to vacation. It becomes the center of man's opposition to God. Just real quickly, I want to trace with you Babylon in the scriptures. We're going to jump up to Isaiah. You can listen to these or jot them down for later. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19, Babylon is described as the glory of the kingdoms, referring to the kingdoms of the earth. It describes it as the most beautiful city on earth. But then in chapter 14, verse 13, it talks about the pride of the city. They, they sought to exalt their throne above the most high God. Later in Isaiah chapter 47, verses 8 to 13, the author pulls back the veil on this beautiful city and tells us what is going on. Though it's beautiful and prosperous, it is full of sinful pleasures and pagan superstitions. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, you have Nebuchadnezzar, the proud ruler of the kingdom that conquered Yahweh, he thinks. He has all the Israelites in exile there. And you can hear the pride that manifests in the entire city in these words when he says in Daniel 4, verse 30, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. In that instance, God did intervene and Nebuchadnezzar was driven to madness. And for a time, he grew long hair. He ate grass like an animal until God humbled him. But biblically, Babylon becomes a center of mankind's rebellion against God. If you skip to the end of the story in Revelation, you really see this come out. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, it describes the global influence of Babylon. At the height of her power, she is alluring the nations. And it says this in Revelation 14, verse 8. She made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. Revelation 17 is, is a worthy, wild chapter for you to look at in comparison to what's going on here. It talks about the city like a seductive prostitute that lures the kings of the worlds to herself. In verse 5 of chapter 17, Babylon is described this way. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. In other words, this is a city, city that invented new ways to sin. This is a city that promoted physical and spiritual immorality. In a few a verse later, in verse 6 of chapter 17, it talks about the violence that saturates the city, violence that we saw in the beginnings of Babel and Babylon and the city of Babel. It talks about this, a city that's drunk with the blood of the, of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is a city that delights in killing Christians, God's beloved. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 18, it is unnerving what the city is like and what it becomes and how it represents all rebellion of mankind. It finally becomes what it seems these people in chapter 11 of Genesis intended. 
What's sobering is not just this rebellion going on. What's sobering is this is your family history. This is where I come from. This is in the hearts of all of us. It should cause us to be concerned. To what degree am I already engaging in open rebellion before God, even as a Christian? To what degree am I entertaining temptations longing that I should? As Johnny Erickson Tata put it, am I bringing sins into my house like a domesticated animal and teaching it how to sit and shake hands when I should be slaughtering it in the driveway? We all are prone to be in for ourselves. And that's exactly what you see with this people, a self-obsession. They say, let us build for ourselves a city. They're not saying, let us build for God's honor. They're not saying, let us build for the glorious name of God, our sustainer, the one who judged the earth and allowed us to be here. They're saying, let us do this for ourselves. They were not merely after a city to protect themselves. They weren't merely seeking a pleasurable place to live. They were out to win worldwide fame. Ultimately, they were seeking immortality and a reputation that would not die. And so the city wasn't merely a city. They built a tower in the middle of it. The tower would have been built on these stone hard bricks covered in bitumen for mortar. The tower was not merely a building to look at or to do business in like the skyscrapers in downtown Los Angeles. A tower was a place to practice religion. The pyramids that the Egyptians built were mainly tombs. They had hallways and rooms inside. But what archaeologists have discovered about towers in this area, there were no rooms inside. There was a stairway that would wind its way around the outside of the building. And these were big the base of them would take up half a city block and they would extend four stories above where we are today to the height of a seven-story building. And as you wound your way to the top, on the top of the tower would have been a room. Most of the time it's painted blue, blue to illustrate heaven. And inside the room, you would have had two things, a table and a bed. And every day, the priest would climb the stairs with fresh food in case a god had come down from the heavens and spent the night there and needed room service. And this is common all over among the towers that we found and based upon the writings that we've discovered. And so when you consider that they're building a tower at this particular time, we can really only come to one conclusion. This tower is the center of their rebellion against God. They're building a tower with its top into the heavens. They are not going to wait for God to come down. They are getting ready to storm heaven itself. What's fascinating again is about this Nimrod character. He is a character that looms large in extra biblical literature. In fact, the name Nimrod becomes synonymous with the Babylonian god Bel or Marduk. The Babylonians considered Marduk to be a manifestation of Nimrod, his immortality that went on. And Marduk was the chief of all the Babylonian gods. He was a mighty conqueror. He was the empire ruler. He was a builder, just like Nimrod. It's possible that Nimrod was the god that they intended to worship at Babel. Even after Babel stopped and God brings it to a halt, Nimrod didn't stop. He kept building other cities, great places. 
And he got a name for himself, didn't he? But not like he intended. It's more of an infamy than famous. I found it interesting when I did a search on popular baby names over the last 100 years in the United States, Nimrod didn't even make the top 1,000 baby names. You probably will not find in the nursery of Grace Church, baby Nimrod. He got a reputation, but not the kind of reputation that he intended. If they were selling hats at this time to get people excited about the construction project, they would say, make man great again. And if Frank Sinatra wrote a national anthem, it would be, I did things my way. This is the people who wanted a name for themselves like Nimrod himself. And so the third word that we look at is this word name. And name always means reputation. It means fame. But what's ironic is they say, let us make for ourselves. Stealing the very words that God had said back in Genesis chapter one, when God says, let us make man. They're not merely stealing a line. They are asserting their creative authority and power to be equal or greater than God who created them. Do you see how this rebellion is starting to take shape and form? And I hope that each one of you is starting to realize this is not a good thing. They wanted a name for reputation. They wanted global fame. They wanted lasting renown. This is brazen pride. And it's what lies in the heart of each human today. We don't want to submit to God's rules. Just give you a very basic example. How many of you joyfully submit to the civil authority we have in our country today? How many of you joyfully submit to the speed limit on the freeway? What does it take to go the speed limit? It takes the grace of God to flood your heart, to take control of your foot, and you lift off the gas and let the cars go by. We are wired to rebel against God, are we not? Even in things as basic as the civil authority and the speed limit. Are we any different or better than these backwoods, ignorant Babylites? We aren't. Jesus addressed the root of our rebellion. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. All rebellion problems are heart problems. And so I just put before you today, what is in the root of your heart? Is it God's glory in his name? Or in some way, are you seeking to make a name for yourself? So we have a city, a tower, and a name. And we see what's driving this is not just pride, but fear. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth, which is exactly what God said they were supposed to do. And they should have trusted that God knew what was best for them. Dispersing God's name over the face of the earth isn't mere busy work. It's not just a thing to do on the side of life. This was an invitation to join God in what he cares most about his glory, and his fame. In Numbers 14, verse 20, we know that this plan to spread God's glory will succeed because God says, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And he repeats this in the Psalms, in Isaiah and Habakkuk. Our hearts should rejoice at such a high calling to be invited in, to make it a name for God. Our energy, our finances, our very lives should be dedicated to spreading the glory of God across the earth. Should it not? 
Should we not be excited about when a global partner, when a missionary comes and shares about their ministry? Should we not be eager to remember them in prayer? Should we not be eager to sacrifice our finances of how can we spread a renown of the Lord across the face of this earth? And that will drive you as it does this church unless you're a child of Shinar and you care more about a city and a tower and a name. It seems like this rebellion is unchecked. It seems like it goes on without anything happening. In fact, it would have taken them a couple years to get to this point of constructing the, the tower. The first year, they're dedicating and consecrating all those bricks to their God, and they start building, and God says nothing. My friends, when you're concerned about evil rising up in our world today, God knows everything that's going on. He's not doing nothing. But sometimes God comes down. And he does in verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This is the Lord doing some research. Does he not know what's going on? Does he have to come down? Of course he knows what's going on, but this is the incredible irony and perhaps one of the most humorous parts of the story. The great tower that was going to reach to the heavens and bust through heaven's gate is actually so small that God, as it were, couldn't see it from heaven. And he has to go down and wonder what is going on. This is like ants building a siege ramp against the great wall of China. It's not going to do much harm. And so God comes down, not because he's ignorant, but to illustrate how insignificant this mighty rebellion actually is. And the God that they thought they're going to overthrow in two seconds is there and changes everything. Really, Isaiah 40, describes this, that God sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, not only small, but weak easy to crush. So God comes down, but he doesn't come down as a happy tourist. God comes down as a holy judge. Now this is illustrating the incredible gap between the creature and the creator. The creature isn't merely small in size and number, but he can't accomplish anything that he intends to do. And that's illustrated by this choice of words, the children of man, referring to Adam, the children of Adam. They are weak, they are but dust. And the text is reminding us this great rebellion has nothing behind it. It's all bark and no bite. So when God does his research, he knows what's going on, and then he gives his response. He gives his response. His verdict comes in verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. When the Bible uses that word behold, this is a moment when you really want to pay attention to what's being said. It's a, it's a verbal marker that what comes next is really important. And so what's so important about this? It almost sounds like God is afraid, doesn't it? Oh no, this is the beginning of what they will do. I've got to do something or maybe I'll be in trouble. It can sound like that unless you understand what God is saying. When he says, this is only the beginning of what they're going to do. The word beginning is in a verbal tense that means to start and never stop. They will not rest until they accomplish their goals in the rebellion. 
what happened the last time man was allowed to rebel to its end? Just a couple chapters back, a global flood came and stopped them. This is one of the most merciful responses that we can possibly imagine that God could give. These people are no different than their counterparts before the flood, where their heart was evil and wicked all the time. Obviously, the flood waters didn't wash away the rebellion in man's heart. A hundred years were at since the flood happened. Noah was still around. They could have talked to eyewitnesses who survived the flood. They knew what God intended, and yet they still rebel. And they are so driven, nothing will stop them unless God himself does. And if God doesn't stop them now, another catastrophe like the flood is going to have to wipe them out. What's so merciful is he doesn't kill one person by his judgment. His response isn't light, though. It's not like, oh, he just made these people speak Spanish and these Italian. We know this would cause ripples across the entire earth. If you look back at chapter 10, it speaks about Shem's sons. And in verse 24, there's this one man named Eber. Eber is the father of the Hebrews. And in verse 25, it says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided. They were nowhere near the Tower of Babel. And yet it affected even this family, this godly family, and they named their son to mark this division that happened. We suspect, or linguists suspect, that there were about 70 languages probably produced in that time. Today, there's over 6,000 distinct languages in our world. And this would have caused all sorts of turmoil. Not just some funny, you say hola, I say hi. They could no longer relate to one another. And God, by confusing their languages, which Babel means confusion, the very thing they wanted to be known for was a, a name. Well, they got a name, didn't they? It's a name of failure, of confusion, of ineptitude. It's a name of rebellion and that was judged by God. And so God confuses their languages. And it's a merciful response because if he hadn't done that, it would have taken the life of every single person involved in that rebellion. What's crazy is it didn't stop the rebellious nature of those people because Nimrod went on to build other cities. Nineveh is never known as a center of Yahweh worship. It was one of the most brutal societies in human history. And yet God was patient with them. He's patient with you today. Friend, if you have persisted in your rebellion against God, if you have not yet turned to God, I admonish you today, heed the warning. Because one day you will stand before God and give an account. It has been appointed to man to die And then comes judgment. John 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And you may feel like everything's fine because you're not being confused in your language, but God's wrath is resting over your head. He is a holy God and he must judge sin. For right now, you're experiencing the merciful judgment of God. And every time you hear a language spoken, God is warning you yet again to turn from your rebellion. 
For all of those of us who struggled in Spanish or French, God was reminding you that this was a struggle against him that we were taking part of. And God mercifully today reminds people when we hear other languages spoken, that he's waiting patiently, but there will come an accounting. This rebellion keeps on going in this way that God in verse eight dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They tried to oppose God, but God, like a master martial arts expert, takes all the momentum of the enemy, uses it against them, and they're flat on their back wondering what just happened. They end up obeying God, and this will be true for every single one of you in this room. Every single tongue will confess that the Lord is Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow down, but not all confessions will be ones of joy and rejoicing. You will ultimately serve God's purposes. Stop your rebellion today and turn to Christ. Now we've seen this warning and I want to end with a stirring up of your wonder at God's response. This isn't just here, but we're gonna finish with this incredible furthering of God's plans. First of all, in the very next chapter, chapter 12, you see Abram on the scene. God mercifully plucks Abram out of an idolatrous people in the same area, the plains of Shinar. And he says, I'm going to choose you and listen to what God says. In chapter 12, verses one to three, he says, I'm going to make your name great. I am going to make a great nation of you. Who's doing it, Abram or God? God's doing it. It stands in direct opposition to Babel. And yet God is saying, I know what you intended, but you had it all wrong. And now I'm going to do this for you, Abram. And God promises Abram that one day there will be a seed. And then he comes. He lived on the earth. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that none of us could. He atoned for the wrath of God that was resting on the heads of all those who trust Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 2, we get one of the most phenomenal reversals in history. All of a sudden, the spirit of God comes upon the apostles and they start speaking in languages that were known but unknown to them. And people who are gathered in Jerusalem hears the gospel in their own tongue, a tongue that began way back on the plains of Shinar. Suddenly God is taking the very thing that was used to confuse mankind and he's bringing clarity And Peter stands up and he gives the first Christian sermon. And that day, 3,000 souls become God's souls and children. And they turn from the rebellion of Shinar to become the revolution of God. But it doesn't end there. It gets even better. We sang about it today, didn't we? When we get to heaven and all those people are gathered around. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Revelation chapter seven, it puts it this way. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All these different people, all these different languages, 
all these different nationalities, and yet they are with one voice praising God. They are a unified people. They have a unified voice, and now they have a unified will to glorify God. And they declare the gospel message that salvation belongs to our God. It doesn't rest in your rituals. It doesn't happen from your good works. It happens when God comes down, and he did that. Christians, isn't this amazing news? Should this not stir up wonder in your hearts? We need to tell people and warn them about the wrath that is to come and invite them to join us in wonder about our great God. And so I hope today that you'll wait no longer. You'll heed the warning about man's rebellion and you'll respond in wonder to God's merciful response. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is startling to look at this story and realize what actually was going on. And I think it's even more unnerving to realize that we all, like these people in the plains of Shinar, were like sheep that wandered away. We all had gone our own way. We admit readily that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know what we deserve. And yet today we rejoice that you came down, not in judgment on us, You came down in merciful compassion. Even today, you restrain the full outbreak of sin that would devastate this earth. Even as bad as things are today, it's not as bad as it could be. Thank you, God. I pray that today you would restrain the sinful inclinations of our own heart by capturing our hearts fully with wonder at what you've done for us. That when temptation comes, it would look unappealing, and uninteresting because we're so overwhelmed and in awe about what kind of a God you are. Oh, Father, this is a work that only you can do. And I pray that you would come down. I pray that you come down today and draw us back to your son. And we stand at the foot of the cross in protection from the wrath to come. And Father, if anyone here has not yet turned to you in repentance and faith, may they heed the warning and join us as the children of God who declare that salvation is from our God. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.